Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the AEW Full Gear 2021 review. I'm Michael Sidgwick, joined by fellow Dadly Boy Michael Hamflet to discuss everything that went down on AEW's latest pay-per-view event. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure to subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. We review pay-per-views, Raw, SmackDown, NXT 2.0, Dynamite, all the mainstream wrestling company TV shows, wrestler interviews, roundtable discussions and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz of course on wrestle culture before we talk for presumably a long time <laughs> on the details of uh full gear what are your general thoughts on the show uh i watched it twice to try and be able to do that in this introductory summary bit that we always do and truthfully they're lower than they were after the first watch and I don't think they were as high as the consensus. Maybe not. Maybe that's not the consensus. Maybe I missed just that. I thought this was a good show, um, a very good show in places. And this is a little bit spoiled wrestling fan. This is a little bit chasing the utopia that AWs occasionally give us the glimpse of. But my prevailing takeaway before we get into the minutiae is that, to me, All Out 2021 now feels like a fluke. And the television, the brilliant television wrestling company cannot quite do it on pay-per-view. And I will wait and I will watch and I will purchase and I will indulge and engage over and over and over again to hopefully see that change. But like I really, really was rooting for All Out to not just be this awesome night, but to be this confirmation that, oh, they cracked it. And like this was a step back in that regard for me. Yeah, I wanted to be overwhelmed by how brilliant this show was, how much it accelerated by almost cruelly in the sense of they've built this for several months. It only happens once per quarter. You're meant to want to watch all of it in the same mood, in the same vibe. And they didn't do enough when sequencing the card to cultivate that vibe for me. Three matches on this show in particular, I thought were exceptional. I adored them. Like four and three quarter star tier for me. And yet, as a general live viewing experience, there were like more than a handful of points where I thought, take it home, lad. <laughs> Christ, I. And before we get into the specifics of the show, I just want to make a couple more broad points. Um, running four consecutive matches at the start of the card that either exceed or 
just approach 20 minutes on the bounce is bad. It's bad, mm. like, layout. It's bad booking in that this is a rubbish analogy, but it genuinely felt like I was eating a porterhouse steak for breakfast. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I just felt a little bit full at the wrong time. Um, so that was an issue. And, you know, realistically, given the quality of the matches, the fact that I'm all in, um, no pun intended, on this promotion, I enjoyed it more than insert pre-network four-hour stadium WrestleMania. Mm. But during those WrestleManias, I never really felt like, come on, take it bloody home. Like, if WWE can nail that four-hour sweet spot, or like that hard spot, there's no excuse for an infinitely better wrestling promotion to not do that. Similarly, with New Japan Pro Wrestling, they've done shows, several of which are out there peak, that were longer than four hours. And the trick is... Eight minute, eight minute, 10, 12, 14, 20, 25, an hour. Like, don't give your audience burnout halfway through the show. And it's a consistent AEW problem. And we're spoiled. And I want to reiterate, there are things on this night that I loved as much as anything I've seen in a year that I've loved from AEW. But come on, sort it out. Yeah, it's odd. It's fun. It's funny they mentioned like the like the equivalent of say WrestleMania, for example. But it is odd to me that one of the only things that WWE does that still makes them look like a functioning wrestling company is one of the few that you can have an actual good faith debate over AEW versus WWE on when we talk about these pay-per-views and pacing and structure and everything like that. I I was left thinking that as well. Um, Tony Khan had said about wanting to go four hours, and you hear four hours, and you think, okay, like it's not, it's not, it's not three, and three is lush, but it's not five, and five's nightmarish, and we never want to go back to that era. Um, and yet, I think um, All Out came in at something like five minutes short than Full Gear, and you you wouldn't have thought it, like you absolutely wouldn't have thought, it, and it does come down to sequencing in it. And what's frustrating, um, and it's it's best to catch some of this here because obviously we're going to go match by match, segment by segment on this pay per view. What's frustrating is that it's. It, clearly after the fact it's maybe easier to talk about in hindsight than as you like in when you're the people actually preparing the show but you bang right about the first four matches having that match time like that's that's tantamount to like four matches in a row where you work the leg because you're giving fans too much of the, of the same thing like funnily enough we answered a question on a podcast last week about match times and saying how it's less of an issue now unless you may be looking at something whether or not you want to watch it it turns out that it still is a, a live and in pra- in practice problem because you could feel it. It was it was actually conjuring the same emotion, say as if wrestler A worked a leg on wrestler B, and then the next match, like oh they're working a leg again. It was an identical feeling of oh are we going five more minutes again? You were feeling that rather than feeling what you were watching. And I just I I can't I can't stress how much more I wanted from one match on this card when I got when I was desperate for so much less from virtually everything else. Like, I was aching for 10 more minutes of one particular match, and I think everybody's going to know which one that is. And that was yeah, like, the genius design of its construction more than anything yeah, Well, yeah, yeah. That's true, yeah. But I, it was just, I think it's, we catch that now, and I dare say it'll probably come back up as we go through it. And, like, off the top as well, because, I, like, I don't know, this will come at the end of the podcast, and we always front load these things, and we realise we've ran too long and stuff like that. Like, I don't know whether or not it's worth getting out of the way. Like, the, the Jay Lethal stuff, I don't know where you want to hit it, because... It's a hornet's nest. It's like, there's a lot of like nightmarish connotations. He was named in speaking out. Like we go over this whenever we can. We cover it in the best way we can without 
run head first into legal issues or things like that. But try not putting that to one side. Let me be like explicitly clear about that. Not putting that to one side. That is an issue, and it's like really not ideal. And there's a lot more conversations to be had on that. But particularly on this particular show, when you already have this feeling of bloat and where's this wrestler? Where's this wrestler? Did this even deserve to be on the card? Serena Deeb's in the front row frowning at babyface instead of being given a match in the story and blah, blah, blah. Um, you've added like a guy that's canny bland and probably beyond his peak and might be another, like another Christian Cage, great for the boys backstage, but far less engaging and with less star power than Christian Cage. That's my take on Jay Lethal beyond what is another pretty big perception and optics problem in and of itself. Yeah, let's get this one out of the way now, um, because I don't think people want to get bogged down with it, particularly like the timing of the reveal of the debut was like, are you joking? I just suppressed it. Just think, right, that hasn't happened because I'm going to have to um, tackle it at some point. And I don't really want to tackle it before the match that I've spent two years of my life in. Yeah, yeah. Jay Lethal, for those who are um, unaware, and I'll have to phrase this very diplomatically, has several allegations of sexual misconduct levied against him none of which have been transparently resolved. Mm. This is going to nuke my investment at whatever he does going forward. I've never seen a Jay Lethal match that blew me away. He's very much, I expect, given the way he was presented, despite the fact that he's going to first work a baby face, he's going to be the baby face, Bobby Fish, a guy who eats pins, has a theoretical level of credibility that will allow um, certain heels, maybe like a Garcia down the line, whatever, theoretically, to get a scalp, that doesn't bury like your tippy top guys. That's who Jay Lethal is going to be. The worst thing about your comparison with Christian Cage is that we enjoy subjectively the matches of a Christian Cage, right? And I think a lot more people do than they do Jay Lethal matches. It's not just, oh, he's got like a sharp wrestling mind. God knows we know he trains people and that's not, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. nothing you want to promote. That's a sharp wrestling mind. Might do some decent stuff on telly, but the real effects of his work will become apparent a couple of years. He, he does a class macho, man. You said that about the Jay Lethal thing. The best thing he ever did was versus Kurt Angle as Black Machismo. Like when you said, I've never seen a Jay Lethal match I loved. I was like, well, I can think of two or three, and he was nailing a macho, man. Like, Well, this is exactly the point I was going to arrive at very quickly, is that at least with Christian Cage, you're going to really get your younger roster coming along. Like we've seen it with Jungle Boy already. Like he's a different performer than when Christian Cage started working alongside him. When Christian Cage was revealed as his Hall of Fame caliber name, we both had the same opinion. Oh, that's very good. It's never going to be absolutely life-affirmingly great. The boys who've worked with them in being the elite, because we've seen it, just maybe want to hear that macho man impression. <laughs> yeah. want to be around and he's one of the boys. Can you not just, like, spend time with them in your personal time and not inflict them on us? Or, potentially, your locker room, which is another hornet's nest. Mm. Right. Let's get on to the show. Yeah. Because we've, you know... That neither of us have buddy in the J friggin' lethal on any level imaginable. I will quickly go through the buy-in match. It was basically a means of promoting the respective um, TBS title tournament matches, giving the baby faces a win to lift the crowd before the main show. Um, it was sloppy. The finish wasn't great by any stretch. I did like um, Nyla Rose's various character moments throughout the match. She was She was, was patter on like. Really good. It felt like the closest we've got to an expert Twitter game in the context of a pro wrestling match. So I sort of gleaned some enjoyment out of it on that front. But 
as a match, it was kind of just there. Yeah, um, in a sort of a bit of glum foreshadowing, it missed its peak and went too long. It was, uh, I know it was a buy-in, and I know that like the that hour exists to replay the countdown show, give you a taste of the like the live the live vibe, I guess, the, the, that in-building feeling to get you hyped for the pay And it's an old-fashioned carnival barker match, isn't it? They've got 10, 15 minutes with which to sell you on the pay-per-view, so the commentators are rarely talking about it. So I, I guess it gets a pass on the buy-in is way more like the old WWE free-for-all in that it's moving wallpaper. Um, so it was better than average moving wallpaper, but it wasn't a particularly great women's match. And this division is still living and dying on the quality of its matches. And like... It, it did really piss me off. The best worker you've got is sat in the front row doing a frowning gimmick. And it's like that already puts questions in your head that you don't want to have to answer about what's been going on with the storytelling, what's been going on with some of the stuff on this card that maybe shouldn't be there. Like, I get why she was there. Like, it, it looked and felt and was a token gesture. And it's like, well, just stop your gestures being token. Like, She's too talented to languish in the crowd and to appear on Dynamite on a monthly basis if that so yeah i shared your um frustrations i think we're going to share an opinion on this and i think it was kind of a universally beloved match because the pay-per-view proper kicks off with a match between mjf versus darby allen and holy hell i don't think phenomenal is a euphemistic word to describe this match i thought it was phenomenal what an incredible 20-minute match that could not have been executed or told at the perfect time. I've spoken a lot about how I love how they've told this particular story with this particular group of, I hesitate to use the word homemade, a homegrown rather, because we know that MGF did great stuff and beyond and PWG, as did Darby Allen, but you know what I mean? In terms of mm. TV stars, this is very much an advert for, yes, it's great that we got Punk Danielson and Adam Cole, but look what we've already built. Look at what we are not reliant upon. Let's tell the story now and give them equal billing to a Danielson, a Punk, in terms of um, pay-per-view match time and let them go and kill it and let them go and prove that AEW is not just an ex-WWE guide company. We are the past, present, and future of professional wrestling. To paraphrase one of the guys involved who's selling MGF I refer to was absolutely incredible throughout. The first two minutes of this first two minutes of this match were incredible. It's kind of an MGF theme that he does quite a lot, but it was never more fitting here. This is one of the two or three matches on this card where I was legitimately for kind of the first time on one of these pay-per-views. Like I've got no idea who's winning. Zero mm. idea who's winning. And they played with that with this incredible athletic intricate like witty bit of uh, one-upsmanship in this opening technical exchange um as a result of which or following which rather mgf targets mercilessly darby allen's back he knows exactly how to get sympathy on darby allen he knows exactly how to work with a guy like darby allen um but in the process of just bashing the ridges of darby allen's spine over and over again with these really cool spots he hurts his knee and that threads wonderfully throughout the match because every move that he hits on Darby Allen also affects his own knee. Everything's informed by what came before. There's no fat, there's no wasted motion. There's a constant sense of momentum that never once resonates as an empty series of, we'll get a near fall. We'll get a near fall if we do this move. It all makes strategic sense. The storytelling's great. The pacing's great. The selling is almost out of this world by modern standards. And I love the finish. 
what happened after some absolutely splendid work with the um, cold red reversal and the eventual striking of it, which cast doubt over the finish as well, is that MGF grabs the skateboard, gives it to Darby Allen in a bid to say, come on, I know you hate me. I know I'm out wrestling you. I know I'm giving you a tremendous amount of pain to endure here. Why don't you take the shortcut and beat me up? Darby Allen gestures, no, I'm going to still wrestle here. And my interpretation of the finish is that MGF never once held an interest in getting Darby Allen up a height and over emotional. I think this is a chess move from a guy who's been presented as a chess player who's decided if I preoccupy him with this, the only thought that's been in my head the entire time is I'm just going to get my ring out and cheat. Mm. I love this as another chess move by the chess player of AEW. This match was incredible. I would put it either at the very best of this card or just underneath, they couldn't have executed a really vital story in the broad scheme of things at a better time. What were your thoughts? I almost entirely agree. Um, I think this is the match of the night. I think this is one of AEW's best matches of the year. And I think what um, where this is sort of maybe elevated beyond some of like the like genuine classics we've seen from AEW in 2021, it's a wrestling match company first and foremost, and you get some total bangers, um, is that it had... The pressure of the um had the pressure of the pillars conversation the pillows conversation <laughs> in the in the, in the uh, i mean i could have done with the pillow because i was desperate for some fucking sleep at about four in the morning when this goddamn show was still going um no they had the pressure of the pillars chat and then a story that almost underwhelmed to the point where you weren't terribly looking forward to it which wasn't a great look for saying that like this is the overt mentioning. You've got later on this card, this example of ways that you're going to promote the other two pillars, but this is the most overt use of it. It's like, this has to rule. And like, this has this has to sort of be everything in this match. It can't just be the type of fizzer that MJF had with Jungle Boy once upon a time. It can't be a stunt and bump festival of violence that Darby Allen is known for. Um, it's got to be a, a mix of everything that AEW offers if they're going to be pillars of AEW. And they did it. They absolutely did it. This was at times like a festival of violence, the apron tombstone, um, and, you know, the apron bumps and all that sort of stuff. But it's all about how you use it, where you use it and the selling of it. And all three of those things, absolutely nil. MJF just wanted the count out afterwards because that absolutely should be a, a killer, you know, and the timing of it. As you say, the work that MJF had done to the, the spine and neck and back of Darby Allen, taking out core key areas because it's like, well, if he will literally risk his neck for his stuff, I've got to try and damage it to the point where he can't. You know, and I like so I love that element of the story. And MJF, and I think this went really undercooked in the build-up until the video package and the match itself, the headlock takeover stuff. Like I'm glad they got there with the package and with the match because I don't think that re- I don't remember us once like going, oh MJF mentioning this headlock takeover stuff all the time. You know, this is like going to factor in. Like and typically with AEW, they like if you're watching and you really care, they give you a lot of that stuff. And they sort of managed to just hammer you with it at the last second. So that finish landed and resonated perfectly. It was everything you said about a chess move, but it can now be in the way. Such a huge part of MJF's character is how, like, the whole Mick Foley thing about heels got to believe what he's saying. Even this type of heel has got to believe it. MJF is just the worst guy. But the trick with MJF is finding ways in which even, like, he, he can somehow believe even his own horrendous bullshit. And now we can because he's beating him with the headlock takeover, regardless of everything else we watched. It's like the John Moxley thing 
that Will Bond loves to this day. Well, MJF's undefeated. You know, like, you need to be creative with those finishes with MJF for that character to function and exist in the way he does. And this was another just inspired way to get that across. Um, like, I go back on this a lot. This always sounds like an insult, and I always mean it as a compliment. MJF needs to wrestle more. Like, I need more of this guy because he's... Or maybe he doesn't, and this is why, because you always feel surprised and spoiled. But, like, he's, he's awesome, man. He really is. He's maybe, like... In a lot of ways, he's maybe the most polished of all the pillars. And you think it would go to all the other three with the amount of extra like ring time they get. Yeah, Darby Allen, I know we don't really... Mm, not that bothered about him, mm. realistically. But he was incredible in this match as he well. Was. He was. He was. Yeah, he was. Incredible. Absolutely incredible performance. The next match, I suspect both of us are going to be on the lower end of than the consensus. Some of it was absolutely spectacular. Some of it was a little bit ropey. But the ropey bits... The way I put it in my uh, ups and downs, which you can read now on whatculture.com slash WWE, is that Penta wasn't the very best version of himself in this match, but he couldn't have bungled two better spots, if that makes any sense. His punches to the corner looked like almost Shane McMahon tier. His three amigos looked <laughs> like genuinely like I was thinking, what are you doing? And yet, those are massive, like really reliable crowd participation spots so it almost didn't matter how bad they looked because the crowd was going to go up um for either of them i've got a bit of a cop out here you ready for this this is a good mm -hmm. content creator cop out i think you'll be up for it um it's hard to recap this match but maybe that's a problem with it because <laughs> so much cool stuff in it almost to the detriment of itself they stumble upon an absolutely fantastic finish and it works as a false finish because they didn't, when Phoenix jumped onto um, one of FTR to assist the fear factor, it was less a spike and more a springboard on which to do a crossbody to the other member of FTR. So mm. on some level, it works as a perfect false finish because you haven't given the full spike of the finish. And you've got two men down, so you know there's no save. You're programmed to think that, oh, that's the end. But at the same time, that spot was so cool that you're thinking, oh, everything they do after this, specifically, um, it kind of a sub-TV, we're going to do another match finish, um, acted for me as a diminished return. But I thought for every kind of wonky element of Penta's performance, and maybe that's harsh because he was pretty awesome in every other bit of it, I thought Phoenix and FTR worked brilliantly together. FTR fed him, they were in perfect position for everything he did, his rope runs, his aerials. But at the same time, it was kind of in a sort of indeterminate way that I can't articulate, like a bit wonky to the point where if you imagine a match building as like an upwards diagonal line, I, I never got that feeling. It was a bit up and then there was a few moments of awkwardness and there was no real central plot thread. I know they, FTR did an FTR match where they were doing the belt shots and the cutoffs and the tully bits, but it just felt a bit overcooked. Like a very good to excellent match that I still had kind of a fundamental problem thinking was like incredible. Yeah. I, yeah. I I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a few things to this, isn't there? I'm not so sure. I'd like, I don't want this to sound like an excuse because there's more points I want to make about this, but like this appears to be a chemistry issue between these two teams and when you feel that it becomes harder to imagine they'll ever excel beyond a certain ceiling it just doesn't seem like they they mesh in the ways that you perhaps expect it is and like i i hate to like 
I feel like I've had to go FTR a lot lately, but they're becoming the example I go to for this. AEW is as good with the long-term story matches as it is the match graphic out, out of nowhere matches. And FTR, for the longest time, was such a cool match graphics team because you just because we'd all done it already. And then AEW was giving you these countless tag matches that you wanted to see lined up against FTR. Leech Brothers was a big one. And at no point has it ever lived up to the, the like the excitement that the graphic that you first saw or the feeling that you first had about FTR versus Leecher Brothers, and that's a shame. Um, I, I, the only, I disagree with you slightly on the finish, but not in terms of the execution of what we got, in terms of, I think they missed the peak with what should have been the finish, which was the frog splash, and I blame Chris Jericho, because he swung it around backstage, didn't he? The man of 4,000 finishes insisted on winning his match with the frog splash. Like, the guy that should have been Judas affecting Dan Lambert finished it with the frog splash. Like, For a nice reason, though, he was close at the... Eddie than most on this show. Aye, but like, not to be funny, right? Eddie's widow was on the kickoff and there was about 50 wrestlers that were close to Eddie on this card. Like, sometimes you've got to look at the art as well as the artists and like, I'm probably, this is an anti-Jericho spite thing coming out, but like, I look, I, I got it and a nice and all that, but like, it was a really awesome finish in this match. So give it to Ray Phoenix, do something else. Like, because there, there was three matches of the three Amigos that had like you know three matches that used it. Did it, did it happen in the women's match as well with Vicky at ringside? That might be four for the. There was something Eddie related in the tag match. Anyway, I can't remember. Four amigos, but like I, I just thought like oh, that was the only point where I was being jazzed and revved up for like and finally oh they've just clicked at just the right time. It's going to be a hot finish. We're going to get out of here and have like a nice memory of it. And it wasn't. And then it's like oh, it's two more minutes. And what you get is this like like uncharacteristically clunky AW finish as well. I, I And we're going to get to it next. Like, I think they're, AW is such an awesome finish company, typically, that it, it that's what it leaves you with. They understand the power of a good finish, leaving you with a lasting memory of an overall match, regardless of what's happened before it. And this, this was maybe a little bit of that in reverse. I think if they'd have nailed the finish, stuck the landing, as it were, then we'd probably maybe a little bit higher on the match. The stuff you mentioned about FTR and the Tully and the cheating and that, it's starting to look less like, and we are, you know, you have to compare the NXT run because you just, because it's there, the evidence already exists. That looks like artistry. This is starting to look like formula. And I don't know how you break that cycle with FTR because I like, I think, like, I think that's one of the complaints that is made. People aren't saying out loud, but it's starting to become a complaint of the FTR, along with like the extended heat sequences and not really knowing what the characters are. Are they throwbacks or are they just out and out tribute acts? You know, like I, I think there's quite a few issues with them at the moment. But that I'm not feeling the artistry of the of the tag team specialists anymore. It's starting to feel like a bit of a, a bit of a bit. No, I completely agree with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, we are pedantic critics. <laughs> Neither of us are saying this wasn't at its peak, like this tremendously exhilarating match. But at the same time, I still expected a little bit better. Um, I can't really make my mind up on the next match. Um, it was Brian Danielson defeating Miro to become number one contender to the AEW World Championship. It was excellent when it peaked. I potentially thought there was a little bit too much fat on it. I like Miro very much as the guy who beats you in under 10 minutes, right? That's just how he is because he rarely gets pinned. And he's one of the few guys who can really tell such a compact story. This is a far more bloated effort um, but it was excellently worked, so excellently worked, and yet 
the thing about the first two matches that there were several absolutely pulsating near falls that a lot of people really bit on. And it's in this match. So the story is that they both have a submission hold. Um, one guy's stronger and bigger. The other guy has more submission holds than the other. And he's more skilled at the actual technique. So he's fighting from underneath to apply them. But the crux of the drama is that Miro can has one hold that is better than or at least equal to any of Danielson's, which led to these great exchanges when they were ruling between and the game over and the, the bell lock where you thought the finish is going to come on either side of the ring imminently. That was really, really tense and dramatic. Some of Miro's subtle work here when he was hovering his hand just above the canvas, like motioning to tap. I, watching it on TV, was really drawn in. But it's sort of thing, like these almost imperceptible hand movements. If you're watching it from like the upper deck, you're not going to really see that. So mm. I think it affected the volume. It wasn't white hot throughout. It certainly got there by the finish. Um, I would describe this as an excellent flat four-star match that could have maybe done with a little bit of urgency. Uh, and again, it was the, the theme of the night. If they just trimmed off two or three minutes, less could have been more. But it was still great. Yeah. I The finish was unbelievable. I was purring at that finish. Yeah, it was awesome. Unbelievable. Um, with all the enthusiasm of JR and Jerry Lawler watching a pillow fight. Unbelievable. The four pillows fight. The pillow pillow. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, just you just because you don't get it. it. Like, don't do what what is it? Don't do what Donnie WWE does, as you say. Like they just wouldn't do a DDT from the top rope straight into a guillotine immediate submission. You just don't get it, and it's real, and his neck's like it's got a neck of sand. Like, I cannot believe that a Brian Danielson match didn't earn that more. Surely he's the perfect wrestler to arrive upon. Well, I'm going to have to take this mother to the top rope and drop him clean on his head and then unleash another submission that I know I've got in my back pocket. I, I was like genuinely surprised. Like that felt like it came out of nowhere. And that is a criticism on the match. Could you have like, kicked I'm, his neck a bit? Like I'm sort of thinking to myself, like I'm not going, it's all about like sort of like the, the inflection in your voice. I'm not going 20 minutes for that. I'm thinking like 20 minutes, then that. But it, I don't know. It's like, it's just for something so awesome. I'm surprised that they, of all those wrestlers, and of this being Miro's whole thing, pretty much, and Danielson being as good as he is, I'm like, you know, like we got more of that story in the Fuego match than we did in this one. It feels like. Um, and as well, just a booking point. And, you know, it's, it's AEW long-term storytelling. So I don't know that, if things have changed or whatever. I would argue, having watched this, I would argue that if Danielson was the play all along, give Orange Cassidy a buy and see what that looks like. Because I'm this is absolutely not me saying this was like a Lance Archer defeat too many for Miro, but like the win would have been pretty amazing and really in keeping. Like he looked like the perfect replacement for a very obvious reason. Well, he, the guy needs a title match so he can go home. So you found the perfect way to give him a title match by not winning here. Was it necessary that he went in in the first place? Um, maybe from a longer-term booking standpoint, which we are not privy to, so we can't... That's it, tell. yeah. That's it. He was having a storyline about how he's lost his title, he feels like he can no longer go home to his wife, and there was going to be a plan in place to pay that off, and it feels like a bit of a freebie because we can just do that again 
and then mm. eventually arrive at what we were going to do all along. But this way you get a replacement for an unideal situation. You get theoretically great and mostly great um, pay-per-view match out of it. So I will reserve judgment on that front. Um, because, as again, it just feels like it's a continuation of his story. And I didn't come out of it remotely thinking that he looked... I'm not going to use the dreaded buried word, but, you know, no. weakened or less relevant or whatever. Like, it killed him off in a really believable way that felt strategic and felt earned. Um, even if the match kind of by its layout wasn't really exhilarating by design. Um, but it was still great, tremendously worked, like little tiny moments of craft with a hand hover. And the next match, in theory, worked as a beautiful complement to this because it was completely and utterly different. It was Christian Cage and Jurassic Express versus the super click of Adam Cole and the Young Bucks. And this is a, a point about how I don't think the structure of this match in itself was off. It just followed three 20-plus or near 20-minute matches. Because I genuinely think that was worthy of the 20-minute duration. One, because it was pretty incredible. Mm. Two, they had a really nice and fascinating going forward story with um, Jungle Boy at the heart of the match. Yeah. Um, so I think it warranted its length, and it did feel like an epic, particularly since the idea was Jungle Boy has to absorb like a lot of really like nasty, dangerous violence to eventually arrive at the conclusion of, no, I've learned you're going to have to be like a really tough guy, baby face in this game. You're going to have to do things like this because it's like sort of just or whatever. And I think it really needed to be a little bit drawn out and not just a sprint to really capture that story because it was almost like wrestling being a big giant paradox in itself. Watching Jungle Boy brain Matt Jackson's head against another chair kind of felt like a tender, sweet moment. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Good for bloody him. He's... Got a little bit of a beard now. He's no longer just the wiry, lucha-inspired guy who can kick out loads of things and have spirit. This felt like a progression in his character mm. that was earned by the duration. But again, I've four in a row, like kind of torpedoed for me anyway, the next three matches on this card to varying extents. But it was a Young Bucks Blunder Brawl. Every time you see someone go through a table, you think, that's an awesome spot. And two, I didn't see a telegraph because he's so great at sort of dropping these moments of plundering and threading everything together. Um, it's the baby faces get the win and they get their redemption and their vengeance in the end type match. And they build towards those various moments really quite well. We talked about the Jungle Boy Concerto, um, Christian Cage performing a balcony dive, which is incredible. Um, even though I don't like the communication of all right, and a high spot's incoming because I can see the people ready to catch it. It's one of those things where the rational part of your mind that switches off with the literal quickness of a light switch because then you see Utosaurus do a shooting star press off a ramp and you just immediately get overwhelmed by how awesome the is. Yeah. So they got away with it there um, to a degree. But it was a wild brawl put together immaculately with a happy ending that I didn't really see coming, but I'm really glad that I did because... Coming off the end of it, the Christian Cage Jungle Boy stuff. What if, and this is preview stuff, but we might as well get into it. What if Christian Cage like really kind of pushes Jungle Boy to do something beyond what was pretty deserved vengeance? Like you're gonna have to do something like this to be somebody in this company. You can't be the young, promising green guy anymore, right? You've done that. What if Christian Cage is such a prick going forward that you think, all right, okay, well, what if you do this? And at some point, it might get too far. There's a lot of storyline potential, and I thought this match was. Excellent, if not particularly complimentary to the uh, the rest of the card. 
Yeah, I I've really loved this and um the Chris just on the Christian Cage Jungle Boy stuff specifically, I think this was substantially more rewarding than any of us imagined it would be in terms of that specific story. Um, right down to the finish itself, having myself and many others nervousness, like nervous due to the body language of Christian Cage that he was going to get up and leather him with a second chair that he had. Like they they were so effective in adding like enhancing the dynamic between Christian and Jungle Boy, but also developing a further strain of tension between them at the same time, which has been so well done as well. Like Christian's underrated house behaviour does so much for their relationship. Yes, that whole idea was almost this like, one day you'll be a man, my son, and you'll do it by concussing a man under a steel chair. But like the, the very sort of the duality of that, we as fathers can understand this the duality of that messaging is the is like permanently embedded in your soul that like christian's a bad guy and he's going to do bad things to this nice guy and like is he is he both is he somehow simultaneously a corrupting and positive influence is the angel and devil on his shoulder at the same time but ultimately the devil will always win so that's going to be to jungle boys detriment down the road i really enjoyed that way more in the guts of this match than i imagined because i just didn't I didn't see it from the build. I, like it's another case where I don't think maybe some of the stuff that they were trying to get across in the build was well illustrated. Because what I saw here was a like a fairly routine victory for the Super Click as part of the further undermining of Kenny Omega. And in something it was very different. And perhaps we can even look at how maybe but how that played into a little bit of the finish in the main event as well. So maybe it didn't. Might even call it deft. Indeed, some might. And you know, um, I did say this on Twitter but the people who follow me by mistake when they're looking for you will forgive me. Um, AW plunder matches don't always hit, and the multi-man matches really don't always hit, but the Young Bucks never miss. They're, they're geniuses at this. They're, they're, they're always the glue. They're always um, the sort of common denominator. And of all the matches where I would have shaved time, I wouldn't have done from this. I never once... I never. And again, it's, it's I'm, just to be clear... I'm assuming you're not, and I'm certainly not. I don't sit there with a stopwatch. I'm going off, I'm just going off what my gut's saying or how my head's feeling about a match. I'm, I'm, like I'm looking at, I'm doing the old Steve Austin looking at his imaginary watch sort of thing. I'm not literally sat there with a stopwatch thinking, well, it's past 15, I'm cross. It's completely about how I'm feeling within the body of the match. Never once did I think, oh, well, lads, wrap it up, go home. Like I was enjoying them getting to what I could see was a finale. Like I could see things moving towards the stage as this like grand reckoning. But I, I don't recall a point in the experience, and I put this down to the credit, and not just of the Young Bucks, but obviously Christian. Like, this is his like bread and butter match construction. Like, of all the things that he's probably awesome at in terms of the technical dark arts, he knows his way around, like, a multi-team plunder brawl better than most, I would imagine. Like, there's going to be Edge and Matt Hardy getting on the phone being like, oh, I knew you were going to do that when you did that bit. Like, it's there's three guys there that know this inside out, and I just thought they made use of this time far better than a lot of other stuff on this card. They This was... This was so much better than the other match that it was destined to be compared to, and yet this belonged on the pay-per-view less. Like, the Inner Circle American Top Team match earned the spot on the show, but it absolutely couldn't compete with it on the night. It couldn't. There were two minutes where I'm thinking, come on, lads, take it home. But that's not their fault. It was because I'm thinking it's a match on the show to be this long. <laughs> like, is it going to go four and a half hours? Like I was just, you ask, you don't want to ask these questions. You just want to enjoy it. You don't want to think about, well, this is long. Not only am I getting a little bit bogged down by the length of the show on the whole, but you start to worry about the impact on the other matches later on in the night. Mm. Maybe that's just being very pedantic. 
Another match that didn't need to go 16 minutes and 50 seconds. They could have told the exact same story to its betterment in about 10 or 11. It's Cody Rhodes and Pac versus Malachi Black and Andrade El Idolo. I don't think I've ever had as many problems with a match that was genuinely quite spectacular in place. Look at the guys involved. This was like the cutest of cool moves in this match, wasn't there? There's yeah. so many cool moves. I've, I hated all of them. Like, there was miserable so much cool stuff in it. Like, I can't even go through it because there was so many ridiculous <laughs> things. And yet, and yet, I've seen a lot of it on telly before. I've seen at least three. We've seen Cody Rhodes versus Andrade. We've seen Pac versus Andrade. We've seen Cody Rhodes versus Malachi Black quite a bit. So we've seen a lot of what was awesome in this match. And I, in those matches, which again, we've seen, so that has a natural effect on how much you can get on board with it again. At least those had stakes. I had people I really wanted to win or like whatever. I'm watching this match and I'm thinking, what? Is it, lad? I'm mm. so confused. I don't know what to make of it, other than, oh, that was cool. I got a bit of adrenaline at this moment or that moment. I enjoyed the whacking each other on the chest very hard as a tag the first two times. They kept <laughs> doing it. I'm thinking, shave three minutes off. Like, shave three minutes off this match. It's nearly 17 minutes to tell a story that was just kind of confusing. The enemy of my enemy is my friend stuff is really half-baked, excuse to get it on the pay-per-view because look at the talent involved and the power involved in some of the guys' cases. I just didn't know what to make of this at all. Help me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we go any further, though, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses. They can be Big life worries or just, you know, little things like your favorite wrestler not being used properly. The thing is, when we keep them bottled up, it really can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It is really helpful, too, for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy basically empowers you to be the best version of yourself. So why not give better help? a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and best of all, suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash whatculture today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash whatculture. 
Well, I, I thought it was all I can make of it is that I thought it was a dud. Um, every every attempt I've seen, this is cruel because they're not attempts. People can just like the match if they want, and we can differ in opinions. But every attempt I've seen to defend the supposed qualities of this match feels to me like like reaching for the implicit that might not even be implicit. You are speculating on implicit story details that might not even be story details. And a couple of examples that I can think of. Um, the, this was a can they coexist match, which some people in my replies in a bit of conversation on Twitter were saying, that's like a great meta dig at WWE. Well, it's only a meta dig until it becomes the actual story of the match. And it was like, that was our story. That like that's that, that reads as way too generous. But even if that's the actual truth, <laughs> we're going to love this. Like, take that WWE. Like, you do this all, like every week on Raw, and we're doing it on a pay-per-view. It's like, I and it's tanks one of your matches, so you stole the worst possible thing, dickheads. Like, that was a really thick idea. Like, if so if it's attempted at a dig, it's failed. I don't think it was. I think they tried to make a Can They Coexist match work, and it didn't. And number two, and again, like, I cannot believe I'm having to say something on a an AEW pay-per-view review versus a Raw review. What's one of the measures we go to with WWE all the time because it's arguably the most important. Whatever happened in this booking, whatever happened in this match, however you feel, blah, 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 blah. Is this person a star after the fact if there was an attempt to make this person a star? Malachi Black feels so much less of a star than he did after the first victory over Cody Rhodes. So regardless of like the details of Cody's turn or I will not turn or how this is all playing out or how it's going to go, the unfocused nature of this story from point A to whatever point, I don't know, we're at point F, we're at point Z, I've no clue. But whatever point we're at right now has actively damaged the aura of Malachi Black. So it is okay to call it an objective failure, even if right now somebody is out there putting together a Reddit thread on why this Cody is the best, this Cody angle is the best thing in wrestling. And again, like, I've made a rod for my own back because I was, like, critical of ultra super babyface Cody in 2019. But people think I'm just going in on him, and I'm not. I'm watching this week to week. And I'll try and say it as much as possible on the podcast if I think, well, Christ, the promo was like really intriguing. I might not like like think this is that like sort of effective, but I cannot not be intrigued by the words he's using and things like that. And the, the pedigree tease kind of like raises your eyebrows and you cannot not like give it a side sideways glance. But I don't think this is a good story. And I think it's actually the damage everybody involved. And if you didn't think it with a match, Christ, the post-match was this lethargic nonsense. Cameras didn't know where to look. Commentators didn't know where to call. The wrestlers looked like they were like... Outcomes, um, was it FTR came out for the beatdown on pack at the end? It was only one of them. Like, it just... Like, like, the worst the worst kind of pro wrestling chaos. Like, manufactured chaos that can't be tracked. And, again, like, this almost... I'm bordering on sounding like I'm bad faith, and I'm not. But some people use... I was too confused by what's going on. And you're like, were you? Are you just thick? Like, I was pretty confused by what was going on for the duration of this match and the post-match. And... Like, you have to put it on Cody's shoulders because you have to feel like he's, he's like, in control. Like, he's the puppet master, and he must see why everything happening here is for his... Yeah, it's for the characters, but it's for his bigger picture the most because it's all in service to that, otherwise this match wouldn't be on the pay-per-view. If you lift out Cody and you put another mid-carder in, this isn't on the pay-per-view. So it's, it's fundamentally mostly about Cody. And I, I, I don't think it's a good story. And I think even if the payoff is brilliant at the end, this will be like a bit of the reverse of the Kenny Hangman thing. Like, you're not going to be getting four-part YouTube documentaries by fans or an awesome Adam Nicholas, Johnny Cash video hours before the big Cody turn. You're going to like... You're going to, or a, or, or 120,000 lovingly crafted words. By the way, if I was going to spend like 
20 minute batches or four hours at a time on an AW product, I would pick the coming all elite available. Like from is it bigcartel.whatculture or whatculture.bigcartel? Whatculture.bigcartel.com. You can pre-order my book, Becoming All Elite, The Rise of AEW, right friggin' now. I can't wait to read that in full from the bits I've been I've been spoiled and been treated to so far. But I can already say this without having read it. That story is gonna make perfect, brilliant, logical, luxurious sense from beginning to end. So when I get to that glorious conclusion, I'm going to have been teed up for it all the way through the 120,000 words. I'll drop some hints. I'll drop some uh, seeds. Plant some seeds. I, I could not be feeling that any less with Cody no. right now. And it's doing my head in, having to like defend what I believe is an earnest take against it rather than people just assuming. Like, again, people are thinking, huh, people just uh, have this anti-Cody thing they can't get out of their head. It's, and that's not just me. Like, other, they think that about other people. Like, they can't just see what Cody's doing here. I don't think you can see what Cody's doing here because I don't think he's illustrating it very well. I can't. I want to put two things over before I make my last succinct take. I really liked when Andrade completely botched that thing over the ropes in the first, <laughs> like, ten seconds. And Cody just looked at him and just did the, eh, barely. Yeah. Like the way, and I resented that because I'm thinking, just be healed. <laughs> I know it's better often when it's not that simple. And I know you, for very good reasons, don't want to do it. Or very ambitious reasons. Flexing reasons you don't want to do it, but he's so great at it. Just his instinct was, I'm going to make a dick out of you because you've just done it yourself. I'm going to make it even worse for you. On Saturday, somebody reposted that gift from 2018 where he does the wind up middle finger. Yeah. Like he's doing the playground and it's like, you're an art. Enjoy it. You're an arsehole. Just embrace it. Just enjoy because he just went, ah, Nelly. <laughs> I, know, I just absolutely loved it. The worst thing is, like, when we talk about the cool moves in this match, you can, you've watched it. This isn't a raw review. Like, you watch it to have your opinion shared or reinforced or whatever. Like, Andrade's mad, jumps over the ropes and spikes, pack DDT oh. thing that he does. It's the best version yet. It's awesome. And yeah, my camera's still like, what you doing? So my last take before we move on to the next match is, you know when you can sometimes not feel a story, but you can just see it written down? Mm-hmm. Not only have we literally seen it written down, because we've seen <laughs> it the the arrow going into Tony Khan's like draft <laughs> in his notebook but I can see both those matches boy or a tag and he never put that in pen because we got kind of both and it was all just a bit mm-hmm. cool stuff though cool stuff yeah that's why I watched the company, <laughs> company. Uh, Dr. Rebecca defeated Ty Conti uh, to retain the women's world title next uh, they did a bit of hollow window dressing if I'm honest in terms of Right, how can we not do anything on telly other than talk about each other's arses to make this feel like something we've invested in? Well, that's literally invest financially by doing like special entrances. I just mm. felt a little bit cross because this felt like a little bit of last minute window dressing, like trying to make it seem more big than it was, which kind of annoyed me, but I really tried to get into it as a match because I felt like they were sold out a little bit in the build. I'm going to try and not seem patronising here because that's the last thing this women's division needs. Of a 36-year-old podcaster with an inconsiderable platform saying something to the effect of, didn't they work really hard in this match? Because that's a euphemism for a lot of the wrestling early was a little bit sloppy, not the good kind of struggle at all. It felt like they were struggling to remember things or to do things fluidly rather than emulating what that should mean as a struggle in a real wrestling match. Um, and then we got some tropes and then the 
crowd got on fire to a degree when the troops area crashed into the apron and a lot of false finishes and moonsault from the top rope. I will say that Ty Conti is not ready for a match like this, nor was she ready to take a title. I don't think anyone expected her to take, but God damn it, she worked this emotionally, facial expression-wise, as if it was the biggest match of her life, even if she couldn't wrestle it or perform it, if that makes any kind of sense. It was between the two things. I felt like they went a little bit too hard on the false finishes later on. But by the end, I think they had the crowd with them. I was into it by the end. I just think they took a bit of a sloppy and almost like grabby, tropey way of getting there. But I just feel like they really, really, really worked their asses off here. And I'm not saying that in a patronising way. I'm saying that they wrestled as if they were overcorrecting for like a really sort of apathetic TV build. If they just give them loads of time to cut promos on each other, tell a better story, then I think they could have been way more confident thinking, we've got this crowd because they're invested in the story because they've seen the countdown, they've seen Dynamite, they've seen Rampage. Let's just go out there and luxuriate in it rather than write work, 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 spot, 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 spot. And I just feel like they were... It, the best thing I can possibly say about it is that they worked the crowd into something from a position in which they were kind of doomed to do that. Yeah, that's that's well put. The, the false finish flurry is becoming a pattern of the Britt Baker matches. And why is that? Well, it's because she's the champion of a division that doesn't get booked. So, like, that is the reason we're seeing that with such, like, annoying repetition through the screen, because it goes down well in the live crowd, and that's why, because they can take that... I don't, want, I don't want to be cruel and call it a shortcut, but it is what it is. You know, like NXT were guilty of it enough. You take that shortcut to the false finishes, you're going to get the, you're going to get the crowd on fire, um, even if it's over the most meaningless of stakes. And the AW Women's Title certainly isn't a meaningless stake. Um, so that that as a that as part of the Britt Baker decent match formula at this point exists because it has it has to, and you get that from the live crowd, and then it creates a bit of a dissonance between what you're watching like in the arena and your experience of it through the screen, because I feel as though through the screen, you can sort of see the wires. And just to go back to something you said, maybe we're being like pedantic arseholes. And this is for the, like, this is too analytical versus just how you're supposed to watch it as a fan. I don't know. But when you see that, ultimately it breaks the immersion a bit and it stops you being drawn in. One of the only times I would say it was super effective was off another match that was sort of lagging a bit and then just about got there was Brit's title win because there was real nervousness around her. Like they, what they got out of you there with the false finishes was Christ, she's not going to actually win, is she? Like they're never in a million years going to get that with Brit Baker again until she fights Thunder Rosa. They're, they're just not, or they've certainly not shown that they can build to it in the story so far. And they didn't hear. Um, and unfortunately, and it, this is where it became a big problem in NXT is that when you rely on it so heavily for the benefit of popping the live crowd and presenting something maybe greater than the sum of its parts, you like undermine a lot of the groundwork. And they were trying to lay groundwork here in the first, too long, just to say that again, for the umpteenth time this podcast, the match was too long. But for the first like eight, nine minutes or whatever, they were genuinely trying to lay groundwork, but it was playing out to virtual silence. It didn't feel like a great story of note existed between the two that you could build off. You know, she 
She, she, I guess she could have worked her ass, but she's not going to work her ass, is she? So it's not like right, let's 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 go to the S. Let's like let's make it a toxic attraction match, like there. So then when you get the air raid crash, like Conti's got to sell it for like two minutes and then shake it off to get to the false finish, Flurry, and it's just like ah. So it was it was just that to try and get there. Was that the point that he's like, we'll get him there and then we'll keep him hot till the finish, and this will look greater than it actually was and i just i feel sorry for a bit breaker in taikon and as you say you worry that you trip over and you become patronizing condescending because like they did work incredibly hard but you can only do so much with what you're furnished with and that they're continuing to not get enough um i like chris jericho getting pat sharp out of his band of payday scanned exactly the same way to me as like uh this effort to elevate it beyond what it actually was bit of a wwe trick actually that like the Let's, let's elevate this on the night because we've sort of forgotten beforehand. You know, Hamlet, what didn't help the persistent idea that <clears throat> some of this is going long for long's sake. Mm. The fact that one of the best matches on this freaking main card only went 11 minutes and only needed yeah. 11 minutes. And I yes. really hope that AEW was a promotion and some of the younger wrestlers learn from this. It was absolutely fun. Goddamn-tastic. CM Punk beat Eddie Kingston in 11 minutes of oh. this incredible fight with no flab on it whatsoever, with no fake bits whatsoever, with no posturing on it whatsoever. This was absolutely incredible. By orders of magnitude, CM Punk's best thing because I think a lot of us have thought, we felt the first one and then we really thought about how intricate the Seidel and um, Daniel Garcia matches were. This is the first time an entire wrestling fandom was like this is awesome this is where mm. it's it, this is where it's at and this is what cm punk needs to be doing my jesus christ i had a take on this and it's brilliant <laughs> stand me the following take i have on this match is brilliant i didn't dare tweet it because it's the sort of thing that would get cold tweeted into oblivion and i can't be asked but it's so true are you ready for this mm-hmm you want to love this, Ampler. We've talked a lot about how Edge is really boring. Right? Yes. We've talked a lot about how Edge works these programs. He's like multi-pay-per-view programs. And they're all very epic. The worst possible things have happened to him. His neck is broken. It's going to break it again. And my vein is going to pop out. I need it. I need it. I need it. I need this. So his veins popping out of his head. It's bigger than his forehead's vein. He's got cock in the middle of his forehead. That's how big his vein is. That's popping out. And he's uh, and he's intense. He's on the chair and they do the Kubrick shot. And you either break his neck after it's already been broken. You either go to the man's house. <laughs> You know, eat some oranges, but it's meant to be like a really scary home invasion. And then what you do is you break the neck again because it's Seth Rollins and he almost did it way back then and everything's epic. And he hates everyone the most. And yeah. the worst things have happened to him. This match was anti-edge energy and it was so much better than mm-hmm. virtually everything as a result. Like CM Punk and Eddie Kingston didn't break each other's necks back in the day. They didn't... Uh, invade one of those homes or do anything cartoonish like that. They had this argument once in the IWA Mid-South show, and they've both kind of forgotten about it in the years since. It's just Kingston's been told this sort of thing throughout his career. 
CM Punk has tried to be the locker room leader, and it's kind of like ribbed um, and made fun of quite a bit. But ultimately, yeah. it's a resurfaced petty grudge, and this match was petty in the best <laughs> possible way. It was so funny in a way that never felt like theatre. It was a blistering fight, wild punches, elbows, sharp points of the elbow to the head, flying clotheslines, just felt like, I really want to get out of this prick. Not like, I want to perform a high spot. Like, I need to get out of this prick. It's pissing me off. Eddie Kingston motioning to do the go to sleep and just doing a whacking off thing. Like, look at this yeah. super oh, smart prick. Absolutely incredible. The fry Takiyama sequence. If you had a tool oh. beforehand, are they going to do fry Takiyama in this match? I already thought, oh, that feels like a tribute. No, it didn't. It just felt like an extension of this fight. It felt almost as exhilarating as the first time you actually watched the real goddamn MP4 <laughs> on Twitter. CM Punk does John Cena because... <laughs> John Cena is another really patronising locker room <laughs> figure in wrestling law. So CM Punk decides, what I'll do is, I'll mock, take the pace of my Sorry, own. sorry to interrupt, and I know you will have done, because I did too. Promise me that you saw it from his first ever slightly sloppy forearm, what was happening. He yeah. dropped his arm in such a way that he's like, he's like the, and that sounds like we're doing that braggy, well, I knew this was coming. Like like certain people that we know that didn't spot the Brett one, two, three kid thing the first time around. Yeah. Like the... Like, I swear, he hit that first, like, sloppy forearm. It was, the way he run, he changed his, like, I don't know what the phrase is, like, your leg cadence. Like, John Cena runs in that very strange, how is he getting across the ring in one step? Punk moved his legs and arms in a scenery way to make that forearm extra sloppy and, like, weak and lame. And I was like, he's doing it. He's doing yeah. the Cena sequence. Jesus Christ. Awesome. And just to finish off my thoughts before I get yours, not to Sorry. do another... Um, an IWWE thing when it's probably not necessary, but you can't call tweet a podcast realistically. So I'm gonna... <laughs> um, Roman Reigns, when he was very gotten to that CM Punk had kind of stolen his thunder as the big star of 2021. He was like, ah, hasn't got an explosive bone in his body. And he can kind of see where he's coming from. It was a great line from Roman Reigns, to be fair. Mm. I want to put that over. It was great. He was kind of wrong on this evidence because, yes, he's not the best, most explosive athlete, but you've given something that he really wants to get his teeth into. He exploded in Kingston here, like just diving at him, like kicking his throat almost when he was doing the upper chest, like the placement of everything was just magnificent. This match was awesome. You've seen it. It, w- it was won when CM Punk, maintaining this still, I'm still getting the grips with this because it's very hard now. And what does that say about the standard, which is just a great indirect way of making everything better, as CM Punk likes to put it. He drops Kingston with one goal to sleep. He's... Far too gassed. In a great call, Excalibur called it, an adrenaline dump. He's too gassed from this insanely paced fight where they're beating each other up with such piss and vinegar and pettiness. And then he's about to do it again, just ducks a spinning back fist, does it again, shakes Kingston's hand. Kingston refuses. CM Punk is a bloody mess following this incredible wrestling fight. Perfect. Just a perfect presentation um, of all the, and there's been loads with Punk this year because they're just fun to say, but of all the, if I'd have told you back in March that in 2021, CM Punk would be, it's like a mad lib at this point where you just slot CM Punk in. I think my favourite new one is if I'd have told you in, let's go some further as we can do it, in April 2021, that on AEW paper you'd be seeing Eddie Kingston and CM Punk doing the Fry Takiyama spot. Like, I think that's my new favourite one of them because it was just, and the way it was dropped in at the match at the point where you just thought, I, I can't watch anymore and they've just done this. Like They played with your emotions in that regard so fantastically well. 
the the Cena. I'm going to make a very odd comparison to a very niche thing that I genuinely recommend people go and watch after this podcast as a bit of post-pod homework. You you have seen, I think, because we've probably popped over the desks at this one. The Cena bit, which concludes when a punk holding his hand up that long, making sure that every single last person in the building, which in itself is quite a cute callback to Cena saying, hey, I'm working for the... uh, the guy in the back row, and that's why I shout my spots so loud. <laughs> like that. But he held that hand up for the longest. It's like the power slam tease. Absolutely every motherfucker in the building knows what's happening before he goes in with the bird, which then Eddie Kingston returns fire. Like, I added noise. Well, the moves were weak. Yeah, because the moves... I'm not, not going to take a the proto-bomb lying down. Like, John Cena did that in OVW, you mug. Like, the. Um, it reminded me of, you know, Teesside Tintin, which for anybody that never saw these, it was old episodes of Tintin spliced together by somebody from Middlesbrough with the Middlesbrough accent where they would just swear at each other and it turned episodes of Tintin into a pub car park fight and there's Tintin with one of the baddies and the baddie's got the gun to the head and they just keep cutting back and forth and he's going, fuck you, fuck you, fucking you, like that, that's all they've got, they've got no other sort of articulate insults in their arsenal, and it's just two blokes already knackered from the fight they had, just screaming, cue at each other with these middle fingers, because as I, as you say, that is more powerful than the move and the physicality at this point. This match was the CM Punk headbutt as a match. This is, they found what made that pull apart, Punk's headbutt, Eddie Kingston trying to eat Punk's face, they made those two moments into a match and it just played out magnificently. Um, Punk, I think he's found his best look, but I now welcome the day that we finally get Punk versus Colt Cabana and us all wondering, is he going to wear a Cabana outfit? Is he going to wear his own Boom Boom Chicago flag singlet? Like, But it's going to be a Mr. Perfect version or something like that. Like This CM Punk gear thing, as somebody that likes wrestling attire anyway, is fascinating to me because I'm allowed the reads. I'm allowed to think, well, is he going with indie CM Punk baggy shorts or is this a point about how he kind of failed as a fighter and he's wearing fight shorts because tonight he's going to succeed as one like there's you can it might be none of them it might just be that you fancy trying shorts out but I love that you can have some fun with that as well because CM Punk's that guy and he looks cool in most things um I, I can't find a single fault with any of this no it's absolutely flawless absolutely flawless for what it was and what it was was just so resonant because everyone's got that everyone looks at their mate and think you did something to piss me off like 15 years ago. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. It was so resonant and worked so well on those terms. Um, I'm going to do two more thoughts. One, um, this wasn't even me, and I've held grudges, but this one was so, like my mate was like a poet in this moment. Um, a guy called Tomper, right? Big AEW fan, actually. He's the guy that uh, we talked about, one of my uh, oldest and best mates. Um. If he's listening, he won't mind me saying that. He kept his room in immaculate condition right. in our shared house and uh, didn't really tidy much else or buy anything for the fridge. Any mm. I love him, but he's possibly the most selfish guy I've ever met in my life, right? <laughs> right. Our other and mate, uh, housemate, Andy, called him out on it and said, can I just buy some butter? I do something. We're running out of butter. Everyone else has been buying butter or milk or whatever. Just get some butter, and he made him go. <laughs> made him go to Tesco. It's like it's next door from the house. In heating, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know how he found it. It was almost like you know the kids' toys. <laughs> he found literally the smallest butter you could possibly find, and went uh, here. You go, Andy. The smallest butter for the biggest cunt. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I just walked in the house. It was absolutely fantastic. That's what this match was. Yes. That's what this goddamn match was. And I don't know if he wore the shorts one because he realises at long last the long boys don't look that great. But even though they don't look that great, he doesn't want to wear the trunks either because you know, you've got to be new, you've got to be different. And he's yes. stumbled upon his best look and it's because he just loves kickboxing and Muay Thai or because he wanted to he says he likes effing with people. That's why he explained the um, the Cena spot. He said, oh, I just like effing with people. What if he wanted to eff with Kingston by saying, what do I look like? Do I why <laughs> he was a dick to you in 2004? Or what? Let's bring on the fight. Mm-hmm. So that was great. I don't want to spend that much time on the next match because there isn't that much to say. And I really want to save my mm-hmm. thoughts because I'm getting a little bit exhausted now for the main event. American top team and men of the year are beaten as it should have always been, by Inner Circle in a 19-minute and 30-second Minneapolis street fight that went too long for my personal tastes. And yet again, it's mirrored by the entire build, which I thought, oh, it's really hot. I'm not into it, but it's hot, and it's a decent way to spend your time. 19 minutes of comedy, great wrestling. I thought Santana and Ortiz were like the best they've looked all year. Ethan yeah. Page anchored everything in a great performance. Junior Dos Santos, just great, funny, like beaming. <laughs> he was great. Uh, Lambert, like totally and utterly hammed it up. Maybe a little bit too much for my taste, if I'm being honest. But the crowd were into it all the way through. Some of it I thought was genuinely quite amusing. A lot of it was just too much. Then you watch Sammy Guevara take a sent on off a 30-foot ladder and you think, well, this has to be a little bit great. It kind of does, even if it's really, really long, because Santana and Ortiz are really doing some cool stuff. Guevara is. In amongst it, um, you do get the odd flubbed moment where Jericho has to ask to get hit in the face. But, you know, it's a match where they're hitting each other with Crimson. Junior! Junior! <laughs> like Tony D'Angelo, man. <laughs> But what an indictment it is of what Jeff Hardy was doing in that stage of his life that <laughs> this guy has worked his second match just the same mistake as Jeff Hardy did. In the, <laughs> yeah. 500th or whatever it was at that point. Anyway, <laughs> you get the result everyone wanted since July after 20 minutes of, I thought at times, this is kind of shockingly great, given that a plunder brawl that doesn't even have the luxury of going into the crowd or the stage because. The other match already has done that. So I did think there was a tempt to age in this. You know, the headbutting and headbiting is getting a little bit loose everywhere. I thought they aged in these two matches to complement one of themselves. Well, this one um, didn't have the luxury of sprawling outwards. They had to contain everything. They had to remove focus from the guys who weren't doing anything. I thought they did a commendable job. It was just far too long for not just the night itself, but for the tone of the match. Yeah, I'm a bit all over the place on this one. I feel like this is the time to not be quite as heartless and clarify my points about Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho earlier on because I'm not against people paying tribute to their friends. But a little bit of me, you know, Jericho's had an amazing long career and he's met and worked with a million people. So I don't hold it against him if he can't remember the exact day that Eddie Guerrero passed away. But I do think that he was reminded of it and then decided, right, I'm having this. And I don't, I don't imagine at any point in the weeks leading up to this match that that was going to be the finish, because I actually thought, and again, I'm not calling it tacked on, I think it was, it was clearly done with love, you know, but I felt like it almost didn't 
felt a bit weird, felt a bit off at the end of all this comedy that you suddenly pivot. It's quite a hard pivot as well. This is not, um, maybe it is actually, maybe this is an inner circle problem. I was going to say this isn't Stadium Stampede 2 and trying to get to the intensity at the end of Sammy Guevara and Sean Spears, but maybe it is because a lot of that was a piss take as well. And much of this match was fought in the vein of being a big old piss take. And then you had to set up this serious finish when, when in truth, the story didn't even call for serious finish. Dan Lambert, hamming it up as he was, very unnaturally, by the way, you know what Dan Lambert's good at and it's not pro wrestling pantomime. It's getting the heat, like serious promos, getting the heat. And I thought like that, that it didn't expose him, but it just, that was a side of him. I didn't need to see quite as much of as what I got here. So I like, I found the finish a, a little bit jarring from the rest of the match because I kind of admired the attempt, very Chris Jericho, but I admire the attempt to keep the props Minnesota based. Like, I, I loved Excalibur's attempt, having given, probably been given these detailed notes by Chris Jericho to get this stuff over more than loved Jim Ross's fury with all of it. Put it like that. Yeah. So, like, I love one thing more than the other there. Um, I was a bit desensitised to what should have been a big moment for Sammy Guevara. Again, just to sort of go back to the Pillars conversation. Um, it's so hard to say Pillar and not Pillow, by the way. It's so hard. But um, I think it was until he did it wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've never once ever thought about, the, like, the four pillows. Like, the, oh, man. Um no, I, like, I think that was supposed to land more than it did. Sammy's big moment at the top of that ladder. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy in a multi-man here rather than one of the next big... Like, contrast this with the end of Stadium Stampede 2 or his TNT title win. And I think, I think personally, the evidence is starting to mount up that like both him and Santana Ortiz have outgrown the inner circle to their detriment. Um like the inner, I was big on burying the fact that the inner circle constantly got the better of the pinnacle. The pinnacle barely looked like a stable on television, and the inner circle feel like they're putting a thumb on the development of three wrestlers. So I'm like reflecting back on that. It was just, I didn't hate this, but I kind of like it couldn't, it just couldn't compete to the first one. Like it really couldn't compete with the first one on this card. And I, I take what you're saying about the attempts to separate one from the other and the, maybe the limitations that were placed upon this that weren't on the Young Bucks match. It did belong on the pay-per-view more than the Young Bucks one. It's it's a it's a card filling thing. There was too much. This deserved its spot on a show with three less matches. Yeah, and I'd have been and I'd have been much kinder to it had it been on that show instead. I was looking at my watch. I cannot deny that I was watching. Look at my watch, thinking, "Are you going to do Hangman Page and Kenny Omega dirty by making them just do 18 minutes?" They didn't. They did 25. And what I thought was an absolutely fantastic and incredibly worthy end of this saga and again i said the same thing on ups and downs the mega fans will forgive me what i loved about this match other than the finish other than the fact that i think for the first time the crowd on an aw pay-per-view for the main event was louder than the show itself mm. every other time the main event has been overwhelmed reaction wise by something else that wasn't the case here it's a true worthy main event i thought it was absolutely tremendous what I loved most about it was the things that didn't happen as opposed to the things that did. The idea was that Kenny Omega had been found out. Kenny, uh, Hangman Page had replaced him and he knew in his head that he replaced him. He worked the match with total and utter disbelief. He didn't at any point hesitate to hit a move mm. in this conflict. He didn't do any, oh my God, I can't believe he kicked out of that one. Have I actually started to believe myself or am I beginning to doubt myself? No, at no point in the streamlined, incredibly paced, incredibly worked 25-minute match, at no point did my belief in Hangman Page waver. 
which is to say, which isn't to say there's no drama. All the drama came from Don Callis being a complete prick, knowing that his man was done and he had to realistically help him out, leading to an absolutely incredible trope, but an incredible version of it. And what's more is that when Aubrey Edwards came out, when Hangman Page recognised that Don Callis was going to do the belt shot and chased him away from the ring, and Kenny Omega hit, was it um, the Tiger Driver 98? Because Hangman Page yes. got this out and thought, no, nah, I don't need that. I do not yeah. need that. Tiger Drive 98, how many matches have you seen Kenny Omega win with that? No, but none ever. And none it was ever, total, total believable. Yeah. Yeah. None ever. They extracted so much incredible drama from signatures, which is a testament to how emotionally invested the fans were in this match, how well paced it was, how well executed it was. There wasn't a finisher kicker. Mm-hmm. Like, this wasn't excessive at all. They just told the final beat of the story as it needed to be told. Some of the action was absolutely incredible. The, um, the springboard spinning Liger bomb thing from Kenny Omega. Oh, was God. It was Amazing. such an incredibly executed move. And what's more is that the fact that we haven't seen it that often from him got it over as a near fall. Um, furthered the idea that, no, Kenny Omega's a master, and it doesn't matter how much you believe in yourself, there's always that shred of doubt that you can beat someone as good as this. I thought it was the perfect time to do something brand new from Kenny Omega in this match. There were V-triggers in this match that I genuinely thought were like, you know when you saw the first smattering of MP4 clips on Twitter of this Kenny Omega doing the V-trigger, mm. and you thought, how is he not bursting people's noses apart? Yeah. Like, how does he do this? I, you know, I've worked out the super kick. You just take your leg. But how's, <laughs> how's he doing this feature again? There's a point where I thought, oh my God, don't do it that hard because you're going to injure him. Imagine, it's <laughs> yeah. a big question. He can't finish his freaking match, his big moment. Terrifying, but brilliantly executed. Um, they do an all Japan tribute spot or a sequence of them, which I was just thinking, well, this is great because I love new, uh, all Japan of the 90s. The quarter kicks followed an exchange of two absolutely disgusting backdrop drivers to the head. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, don't break your necks. Competitive neck punishment, that wasn't it? You could tell. Yeah, I loved it. Like, I loved it. But I was also terrified, but that's good, because my emotions were completely heightened throughout this match, which I thought was great. Um, but then after that, or just before, or whatever, can you make it start doing the quarter kicks? Can you make it doing quarter kicks? And the best working punch in wrestling right now is mm-hmm. awesome. And then Hangman Page, because he just believes in himself now, instead of going, can I actually beat him after all? He just stands up and goes, oh, God, mother ever. It's absolutely Amazing. incredible. And then at the finish, with Callus gone, the Young Bucks come out. They circle the ring. The kind of sinister sort of, what are they doing here? And you know for a fact that you're just willing them not to hang on to Hangman Page's leg. Mm-hmm. And in something that's going to enrich the next however many months of television, they don't. Matt Jackson, and I love the Young Bucks, but sometimes they can overact. I thought legitimately this was an understated performance from Matt Jackson. Just looked at Hangman Page and I couldn't even read his reaction, much less think, oh, I know what you're saying and you're saying it very loudly with your mouth. <laughs> you know, your silent mouth. and It's tired. We've been on this for a while. He nods as if to say, no, no, I'm scared of you, so just do it. Or does he nod to say, we've lost earlier in the night. None of this has been worth it in the end. We were champions longer as faces than we were for heels. Put him out of his misery and then we can move forward together individually, but something's got to give at this point. So much in that one expression. And he does do that to jubilant scenes, white hot crowd, 
tremendous match. I adored it. What did you think of everything, Huckabee? On the finish first, because it's at the front of my mind now, as as you described it brilliantly there. Like, I totally agree. They're so guilty of overacting, and I think it has been often to the point of the detriment of the story. I, I loved that so much because the amount of things that allowed you to think, and even just the simplest, and like what a what a link to the Hangman Page's story. Okay, you win. Like the young book's been able to just take a step back for a second and be like, all right, you win. Regardless of everything else in the friendships or in like, a way, I love... seconded him as he won his title match. Yeah. Like that it's it's just it's an additional layer of that. The the multitude of stories you can tell, the idea that yes, this isn't going to break up the super click, but is there something in the young books that is good again and will instead get here now Adam Cole trying to keep them bad and nasty? And you don't need Kenny, we're, we're all good with the lads and then Ken Steen comes in. It's like, see, I told you all the lads were coming. I promised you everything was going to be fine. Like, if anything, this is this is generous, and I know it's generous as I'm saying it. Like, did was uh, an Adam Cole match the point at which Matt Jackson very literally had some sense knocked to in, in with that concerto? Did Jungle Boy knock a bit of sense into Matt Jackson with that? Like, because it was Matt that took it, and we know in AW you can that the concerto hurts for about half an hour. Yeah. So, like, was that the, was that set up in that way? You know, like Cole was a little bit dizzied by it, but he got over it and he's fine again. This concerto has it like, has it kind of made Matt Jackson see the bigger picture? And then that puts over something with Cole. It puts over like Jungle Boy as being this little, this little sort of ingredient in the whole thing. So I like that that happened on the same night. And again, I know Jungle that does Boy's sound generous. As well, potentially yeah. turning him face is just... Like, all, yeah. this is, all this is like, it borders on like Bray Wyatt Reddit stuff. I can't appreciate it as I'm saying it. However, like I, I really quite like that. Um, I loved the through line. I think you touched on it. That Hangman Page has arrived on his horse through the streets of Minnesota to get stuff done and go. Like, we are past the point of him asking any questions of himself. And I loved that. Like, throughout the whole match, it that, to use a sort of JRism, dictated the pace. Because typically these matches, like the, the go-to now for making something feel epic in scale is the doubt, is the panic, is the renewed sense of urgency, is all that sort of stuff. And they just lifted that completely out of this match. And I think a lot of people were maybe surprised by that. I think I probably was too, actually, but I loved watching it. And you could tell early on as well. I think that the tell, if you've been watching this long enough, was the audaciousness of Don Callis's attacks. That looked desperate. And you're two minutes in. Yeah. And he's like, he's doing it already. I just thought, this is absolutely desperate. Like, and that to me was the tell that they're not going to have Hangman Page staring at his hands for the want of a better example. Like, it's just not going to be that night. Um, I, however, think it took them a little bit too long to find the drama as a result. And I think both of those things can can coexist. Like, because that was the story, Hangman Page has come here to win and that's what he's going to do. Like, you know, like, uh, inform... Manchester City are going to batter, like are going to just very, very cautiously and cagely pass around a team until they score the first goal. And then like the, the little team can't touch them after the fact. Like because of that, I, I kind of thought they struggled to find that like dramatic, epic feeling pitch until the very end. Loved, loved the last five minutes. Loved it. Um, but I don't know. Like the, I think what's really good about I sum this up. I was talking with somebody else on Twitter. He's a right rat. He's a total mark. But he was asking me my thoughts on Twitter about this. And I was saying to him that AEW is fantastic, fantastic at understanding that there is just as much importance in the satisfaction of a logical outcome 
as there is the euphoria of a surprise, the likes of which we saw when Brian Danison and Adam Cole debuted back-to-back. Euphoria is this like monstrous, overtaking feeling versus satisfaction, which is just this, oh, nice. And I don't think, like this sort of had to be both. They built up Hangman Page's great moment as both. And I think they nailed the satisfaction and they slightly missed the euphoria. And Dad, that, don't be silly. And, well, and it's a subjective what, opinion, I'm joking. What, yeah, what do I know? Because loads of people are crying on Twitter and your eyes sharpen to the point where they want to stab me in the heart when I said it. But I thought they kind of, I think they slightly missed the euphoria here. If you asked me to pick one match or another between Kenny Murray and Hangman Page, I'd pick watching Full Gear 2020 or Full Gear 2021. And that's not to widely, like, wildly discredit this match, which I thought was very, very good. But I know which one I enjoyed more. And and this is where you're really going to turn on me. And it's like we're going to close the podcast out, not friends. We said last week in a unusually heated debate across the desks, I would say, in the office, I certainly felt that this entire title reign of Kenny Omega's would be defined by this match. And I thought this match was very, very good. And it wasn't always great. And that's how I feel about Kenny Omega's title run too. And at the moment was like absolutely everything it needed to be. I wasn't campaigning for the one-winged angel kick out. I'm glad we didn't get it. Save that. Like, keep these, you've earned these things. Keep them, save them. The match was absolutely um, satisfactory in terms of what it delivered. And it definitely did get great at the very, very end. Uh, but I was I wasn't with it the whole time. It was, it was just it was just really 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 good, and the result was exactly what it needed to be. And I would never ever ever want AEW to not tell these stories and have these payoffs. It's, it's the it's the right way to do business. I'll see you at two o'clock for the raw preview. <laughs> uh, two more things: you're entitled to your opinion, even though it's wrong. I loved and adored Hangman Page countering the V trigger in exactly the same way that he a held the legs of the Young Bucks to. F them over in that gauntlet and B held on to Omega's legs when he tried to get suplexed by FTR before the loss of titles. I knew it was going to happen and there was a great reason for it to happen. That was wonderful. Two, I genuinely welled up when I saw We're Proud of You from the graphics team. You invest mm-hmm. for three seconds at a time, squinting your eyes to see what it says, and even that gets paid off. Absolutely immaculate. But um, we've run very, very very long on this podcast, so I will simply close it by asking what you all thought of Full Gear 2021. You can uh, let us know at what culture WWE underneath this link whilst you're there. You can follow Michael Hamflet at Michael Hamflet. You can follow me at M Sidgwick. Um, again, subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from, because in addition to this uh, review, we've got the Raw preview, which is always fun. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It generally well, is. The... We never think it's it can be fun as well. The raw preview, we don't think it's ever going to be fun to any new listeners, but, um, you know, it often is. And then we'll have the reviews and the previews of everything else AEW and WWE related this week. Um, And we will see you soon for that. But for now, ta-ra. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.